Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning and welcome to this IFG live event on fisheries after Brexit. From fishing flotillas protesting up the Thames to Boris Johnson brandishing a smoked kipper at the Conservative leadership hustings, fishing has often inspired some of the most memorable moments of the Brexit process to date. But it is also a highly contentious topic, with the UK and the EU currently miles apart on how quotas should be distributed from the end of the transition period. The 1st of July, the date by which the UK and the EU had initially intended to agree the new fisheries arrangements, is coming ever closer. But reaching agreement by this date is now looking highly unlikely. At a recent IFG live event, Stefan de Rink, Michelle Barnier's chief advisor, told us this would be a tall order. And David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, appears to agree. But even if we put the July deadline to one side, is it possible for an agreement to be struck at all? And what could a deal on fish look like? And then how would the UK change its policy post-Brexit and how much freedom will the devolved administrations have to set their own terms? To discuss all these questions and many more, we have an excellent panel joining us. Theresa Villiers, Conservative MP for Chipping Barnet, former Secretary of State for, for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and also former member of the European Parliament for London. Uh, joining her is Deirdre Brock, SNP MP for Edinburgh North and Leith, and SNP spokesperson on the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Uh, joining her is Barry Dees, Chief Executive of the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations, which represents England, Wales and Northern Ireland's fishing interests. And he was also former Vice President of Europesh. And then last but definitely not least, James Kane, Associate at the Institute for Government, formerly of the Trade Secretariat in the Cabinet Office, DEFRA and the UK Delegation to the European Commission. Now, before we get going, I just want to say that this event is on the record and a recording will be available afterwards. Please do tweet along using the hashtag IFGBrexit and ask questions using the chat function on your screens. Just send them in as we go and we will try and get through as many of them as possible. Now, uh, Theresa, I'd like to start with you. Uh, we've heard reports over the weekend that fisheries is one of the issues that EU member states are putting a lot of pressure on Michel Barnier over. Now, why is fisheries such an important issue for the UK? And what is it that the UK wants to get out of these negotiations? Well, it's... Um... I think it's 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 clear that fisheries has an integral place in our, our history, our economy, our way of life. Um, it has just huge cultural imports for us as an island nation. And there is also, you know, the widespread understanding that the interests of fishing communities were sacrificed when we joined the EU. Um, in, in aid of wider economic um, interests. And remedying that injustice was, I think, a sort of key part of what led to the vote to leave the European Union in the first place. And the, the government's stated aim is very clear, become an independent coast state and to raw fisheries in the way independent coastal states like Norway do with annual negotiations. And uh, with that also comes the, you know, the recognition that whatever the arrangements we make with neighbouring states, we must ensure that UK fishing communities get a much bigger share of fishing opportunities and resources than they've been given thus far under the common fisheries policy. Thanks. And, and I was wondering, Barry, whether I can 
turn to you at this point. Um, what, what is it then that the fishing industry uh, wants from the negotiations? What are, what are your priorities? I'm also wondering, I mean, is it sort of fair to even say fishing industry? Is it sort of one voice or are there different perspectives and priorities within that? To answer the question what we want, um, nothing exceptional is the answer to that. We just want uh, what every coastal state has as a matter of right under international law, uh, which is to be able to act as a, an independent coastal state in, in negotiations uh, and to manage our own fisheries to control access over who fishes in UK waters. So that's the same as Norway, Iceland, Faroes, or Canada, the United States for that example. So uh, what we're asking for is, is normality. In terms of uh, uh, your question about the, the industry, well, you're quite right. Uh, it, it is an industry, but it's many, many different industries, uh, different sizes of vessel, uh, different target species, um, uh, different ranges. Uh, but I think right across the industry, there's a general recognition, as, as Teresa uh, spelled out very clearly there, um, that we got a very bad deal back in 1973, and there's an opportunity to redress that now. Great, thanks very much. Uh, and Deirdre, if I, if I turn to you and, and bring you in here, um, so what is it that, that the SNP are looking for um, in the negotiations? Obviously, we, we know that Scottish fishers land um, more fish than the other three nations put together, so clearly very important to the Scottish Government. Um, and, and sort of, do you agree with what's been said? Have you got anything, anything to add um, in terms of your priorities? Um, well, obviously, the um the fishing industry is extremely important to Scotland, as you say. It's it forms a huge part of the total take from uh, from the for the UK. I think there are a number of issues around this. Obviously, um, the SNP government would like to be much more involved uh, in negotiations over this area, and um, because it is so important to the Scottish um, GDP. But I think we need to remember too that the UK is not going to get everything its own way. Now, I'm assuming that some sort of arrangement will be agreed because. You know, the product is very important to Europe and, and we are keen to sell our product um, to what is the world's largest single market on our doorstep. But I think, you know, we are signed up to international agreements such as uh, UN Close, um, which require uh, the UK to um, ensure proper conservation of fish species uh, and also to cooperate with uh, regional and global organisations on, uh, on uh, achieving that. And secondly, there are historical claims that can be made by EU fishers, which I think could present problems in the future, um, you know, depending on what arrangements we come to. It's not as if, you know, those European countries are going to France, for example, I mean, just look at what happened in, in 2018 over the, the Scallops Wars. You know, I think we can't um, expect this all just to be finished neatly at the end of these negotiations. I think there's a possibility of this dragging on through tribunals and international courts for a very long time. And I think people need to be aware of that. I also think people really need to be um, aware of where, where are, what's happening with regard to access to those European markets and what impact will that have now, on particularly the inshore fisheries, which rely on unfettered access to those markets. I mean, there's a whole, a lot of considerations, which I think, yes, I think a fairer access to um, waters for our fishers is very important, but there are many other issues that need to be looked at in that package. 
Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. And actually, I think that sort of brings me on quite nicely to, to sort of turn to James. And I was hoping that, James, you can set out sort of what the EU priorities are in the negotiations. So just what the ask is. We sort of heard what the UK ask is. Um, but then you've sort of already for the IFG put out a bit of a landing zone um, up on our website about where you think that, that an agreement could be found. And I wonder whether you can build a bit on what Deirdre said as well about the different um, sort of priorities of, of different aspects of, of the industry um, and where you think that landing zone could be? Uh, thanks, Maddie. Um, the, the EU position has definitely hardened uh, a lot over time. Uh, and as, as even Stefan de Rink said at the Institute a couple of weeks ago, uh, it, it could now fairly be described as maximalist. Uh, essentially, the, the current EU position is, uh, to put it bluntly, that everything should stay the same forever. Uh, so the, uh, the EU and UK fishing vessels would continue to have access to one another's waters. And the quota shares that each of uh, that each country's fishing vessels took would remain those that uh, that currently exist and that were established based on uh, based on precedents from the 1970s. So the EU's position is quite firm. Uh, it's certainly firmed up a lot since the political declaration last year, and it's got quite a bit uh, harder even since the negotiating directives earlier this year, where there was still some ambiguity around whether they were upholding just stable quota shares or whether the EU wanted the current quota shares to continue indefinitely. So um, it, it's a very hard line position. It is clearly one that is being driven by the member states, those with strong fishing interests like France uh, and Denmark. Uh, and I think we can clearly see quite some tension there between, between the Commission, between Monsieur Barnier's team uh, in the Commission and the member states with, uh, with, Task, Force, with Task Force UK arguing for perhaps a, a, a more um, a, a less extreme position uh, on fisheries, one that uh, that accepts some degree of flexibility around the exact split of quotas with perhaps transitions over time and so on. And the member states continuing to push this very, very hard line uh, around, around the current quota shares uh, continuing indefinitely. Um, in terms of landing zones, well, uh, I, I think uh, there, there, there are landing zones to be found, because as Deirdre was just saying, both sides have uh, some mutual interests. The EU has an interest in continuing to have access to UK waters, and the UK has an interest in continuing to access EU markets. So you've got there a, a, a trade-off to be made, uh, in effect, waters waters for markets. And so if, if that trade-off can be accepted as the basis of the compromise on both sides, um, then we can, we, can, we can start talking numbers, we can start talking the exact numbers in terms of quota allocations for both sides uh, and uh, in terms of what, if any, tariffs would apply to, to UK fisheries exports. Um, so I would say it's, um, uh, it's a bit like um, what uh, uh, I think it was Churchill was supposed to have said to the, um, uh, the woman when uh, uh, he asked her whether whether she would sleep with him for five pounds, and she said no. And whether she would sleep with him for a million pounds, and she said yes. Uh, or she 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 refused to answer. Uh, and uh, so the, the if we can if we can get past the the issue of principle, then we can start talking price. Very interesting. Thanks very much, James. Uh, I wonder if I can return to you, Teresa, and, and ask what your sort of perspective on that is. Do you agree that there is a sort of landing zone that can be found? And I mean, one of the things about this is that really it feels like in this in this situation, this is one of the stronger cards the UK has to play in these negotiations. So I guess, you know, 
should the UK be compromising in the way that James has said? Um, and if it if it should, when should it be compromising? Because that's the other thing. We're looking at quite tight timelines on negotiations. Clearly, sort of the July deadline just doesn't look, doesn't look realistic anymore. Um, but when do you think that the UK should maybe think about compromising on some of this? The way there's going to be some agreement is if the European Union is more realistic in what it's asking for. Um, I mean, as I started off the conversation, what the UK has put on the table is a broadly similar arrangement the European Union has with other neighbours like Norway and Iceland. And the mere fact that we have been part of the CFP for nearly 50 years doesn't justify the European Union wanting the status quo to continue. I, I agree with James that there's there's some difference between the member states and the Commission. Uh, there's some signals that the Commission is more realistic about what it's, uh, it's going to get out of this. But obviously the legal position is that in the absence of an agreement between the UK and the EU on this, by default, um, on the 31st, on the 1st of next year, there's no access at all for um, EU fishing boats. So it is in their interest to try and make progress on this, but I just don't see um, that the UK government is is going to, to shift um, in any substantial way from what is put on the table already. Um, not just because of the the sentiment comes with you know, the refund, the Brexit, those I talked about. But also there are important matters in relation to the Union. We're intensely conscious of how crucial fisheries are to the Scottish economy, to communities. And we feel very strongly that we need to, as a UK government, we need to defend those interests as well. So for all sorts of reasons, I, I think that... You know, we are not going to see big compromises coming from Boris's government. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. I mean, if I turn to you, Barry, and I'm also going to bring in a question from the Q&A as well. So James sort of talked a bit about where compromise can be found. And Chris Horseman has also suggested something. He said one compromise solution would be a phased transition from the CFP status quo to something which is more closely based on zonal attachment over a period of several years. I wonder whether sort of that would be something that would be acceptable to uh, the UK fishing industry. Well, I think there are some points of principle which um, are about uh, sovereignty and uh, control of access. And that really is where the, uh, the UK has got a very strong uh, hand of cards to play. Uh, the EU fleets fish about six times as much in UK waters as UK vessels fish in, in EU waters. Um, and, and, you know, th that is a key factor in, in the negotiations. My feeling is that there will be will be a deal. Um, I think the issue of markets uh, is an interesting one, but uh, it's one where uh, both sides have a ha have an interest in a, a mutual agreement. There are businesses on both sides of this uh, of the channel uh, in in the supply chain that need that business to to continue. Um, so pu putting that kind of nuclear option aside about withholding a free trade deal because of uh, of fisheries. Um, I think uh, the UK government has never said that there would be no access uh, for European vessels to fish in, in UK waters. It has to be negotiated access, just like any other coastal state, and it has to be annual negotiations. 
Uh, and, and again, I can't stress this strongly enough. This is normality. This is how coastal states behave to each other. Uh, and the, uh, the quota shares uh, should re simply reflect the resources that are in UK waters. Now, there may be a stepping stone, uh, uh, stepping stages to get to that point. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't uh, disavow that. But I think it's very important that the principles are established right at the beginning. And um, so that, that's why the, the two sides are so far apart. You have uh, matters of principle uh, versus uh, uh, on, on the EU side an inability to uh, to give any kind of compromise. What, what the EU side requires at the moment is capitulation by the UK. And I, politically, I can't see that happening. Thank, thanks for that, uh, Barry. If I, if I turn to you, uh, Deirdre, because you sort of first raised this sort of question of uh, market access being sort of quite important. Um, where do you think the sort of uh, uh, middle ground can be or where the landing zone might be on that? Um, and what would your sort of concerns be if if not reaching agreement on fisheries, for example, would mean there wasn't a free trade agreement and, and that what that would mean then for um, those people trading into the EU? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one issue in particular is about the disproportionate effect on different areas of the industry. So the inshore fishers, for example, and shell fishers particularly rely on sort of unfettered access, very rapid access to the EU market. So anything that threatens that is going to be a huge problem for them. We know that in the case of a no deal, you know, we're expecting their interests to be severely damaged as a result of that. And it's not just um, the tariffs, but it's also the red tape and the sort of non-tariff barriers that are involved in all of that as well. I mean, it's been suggested to me by some in the industry that it might be that some of the, the bigger fishers will be, um, you know, will, will, will take on board the effect of extra tariffs on certain species and, and will be able to weather that. But much smaller operations, particularly now at a time of the crisis that we are going through, um, and the fragility of many of those businesses um, as a result of the COVID crisis, adding on this, this potential for a, a no deal, which frankly it looks as if we're, we're heading towards, um, I think is, is a real nightmare for many of these businesses. And I'm yet to hear uh, anything from the UK government about what they'll be doing to support those businesses through that likely crash at the end of the year when it happens. And and I have to, you know, disagree with Theresa. I mean, as far as I'm aware, the UK is not able to, under UN close, um, bar other countries from fishing in its waters completely. There are, you know, international arrangements in place that the UK would have to take uh, account of. Thanks, Barry, yeah, did you want to come in on that point? Just on that last point, um, if you look at the current uh, arrangements between the EU and Norway, two coastal states, annual negotiations, which take place in the autumn, they set the quotas for next year, but they also set uh, access and quota arrangements. Now, they don't change very much, but if by the end of the year, by Christmas time, we haven't got agreement between the EU and Norway, UK vessels, EU vessels don't have access to Norwegian waters. They don't have access to our waters. At that time of year, they want to get, uh, Norwegians want to get access to our blue whiting. Uh, we, we need to get uh, access to um, cod uh, at that time of year. The point I'm making is that um, international law um, absolutely does not uh, mean that a coastal state has to grant access to 
uh, another country uh, for free, free access to its resources. That just isn't there in the law. So I think that's important. The other one is um, inshore fisheries. Uh, some inshore fisheries, I, I, I do agree that uh, shellfish is particularly vulnerable. Uh, it's a perishable commodity, very dependent on trade. Uh, on the other hand, there are inshore fisheries in the Channel, for example, that would benefit enormously. Our share, the UK share of Channel Cod is 9%. The French share is 84%. The inshore fishermen absolutely stand to benefit uh, to a change to, to those shares to something that's a, a bit fairer. Thanks very much. And, and Theresa, I know that... I'll, I know that you wanted to come in um, and then I'll come back to Deirdre on that. Um, I just wanted to just add in a, little, a couple of questions from the chat as well. Um, so Adam Payne has asked the question about giving fishing contributes less than 0.5% to the UK economy, whereas the financial services appears to be, which appears to be less of a priority for the UK government, contributes around 7%. Is there any serious justification for walking away, away from negotiations over this issue? And, and John Pete has also asked, asked a similar question about the fact that it's quite a small part um, of our GDP. So is it really plausible that you don't do a trade deal just because you can't agree on fish? I don't know if you have any reflections on that, Theresa, as well. Just in response to, to Deirdre's point, of course, you know, the expectation is that there will be some access for the fishing boats, but uh, the legal default is that access is not granted unless there is an agreement. But um, it's and as Barry has pointed out, it's, it's not the stated intention that um, we would um, keep our own fish waters exclusively free for our boats. But I think many people, including myself, much of the fishing sector, believe that the historic share of resources to which UK vessels have had access under the CFE is, is grossly unfair. And we do need to uh, remedy that. In response to the questions from the audience, I mean, I think it's, it's not a simple trade-off of size of GDP um, is the determining factor. I think we do need to recognise the, the place that fisheries plays in our culture, in the economy, coastal communities. Um, I don't think that those kind of trade trade-offs between services and fisheries are ones which represent the reality of the decision that's going to be made. There will be a whole range of factors which will determine whether an agreement will be reached. And, and my feeling certainly is if fisheries or any other issue prevents the trade talks from reaching a, a successful conclusion initially, and so we do end up leaving the EU's transition period without a free trade agreement. I thought that the negotiations would resume pretty quickly so that we did ultimately get an FDA to do so manifestly in the invest of both sides that we do. Indeed, the European Union has concluded free trade agreements with virtually all of its members. So it would be a bizarre outcome if the one neighbour that they denied that to was a country with whom that they had a very close long-standing relationship and which is a massive market for their exports. So whilst I acknowledge that the issues are difficult, fisheries and on services as well and the city, um, and they may prove intractable in the time we have available to get an FDA in place 
by 31st of December. But I'm absolutely, I believe strongly that there will be an FTA. It's just a question of when. But coming back to the point about um, insure and uh, shellfish, of course, if we were to leave without an FTA and if uh, there were, obviously there are significant complexity to compliance regulations for uh, shellfish, obviously the government would need to do a huge amount of work to prepare that sector for compliance with new formalities. A lot of that work is done prior to the possibility of leaving without a deal at all. But certainly there, there is, I think, even more that needs to be done to prepare the fishery sector for the kinds of formality that they will need to comply with um, at the end of this year. Frankly, if we do get an FTA, there will still be SS and customs formalities, which um, our exporters will need to be able to handle. So it's important that the government accelerates work on that kind of thing. Thanks. Thanks very much. I might just, before I come to you, Deirdre, just bring James in for a moment. Um, I was just wondering, James, whether you can sort of just sketch out for us what sort of no agreement at the end of the year would actually mean, just in terms of the sort of processes that that would then involve. I think it's um, it would be quite interesting to get your, your thoughts on what Theresa just said about the fact that certain checks and formalities will be needed at the end of the year anyway, and, and sort of how, how that would work. Thanks, Maddie. Um, I think... Uh... Theresa is, is, is quite right. Um, if you look at uh, what are called SPS sanitary and phytosanitary requirements as they apply to shellfish, uh, if you look at the current EU negotiating text, that does next to nothing on simplifying SPS requirements for shipments from the UK into, into continental Europe. Um, so, it, to, a, to, a, to a very great extent, it doesn't matter all that much for the purposes of uh, of, of health certification and so on, whether the UK leaves with a deal or not. Um, looking at the, the EU's draft text at the moment, the only thing that, that uh, will really hang on whether or not there's a deal is the question of tariffs. Um, and that will, the effect of those tariffs will differ enormously depending on how high the tariff is for a, for a given product. So, for instance, if you look at uh, at salmon, which is by far the UK's largest fish export, you've got a tariff on fresh salmon of 2%. You've got a tariff on smoked salmon of 13%. The tariffs are different for every species of fish and often for different preparations of fish, whether it's smoked or salted or whatever. So, uh, And then also you have to consider the impact on the market. So Scottish smoked salmon is a premium product. Uh, there's a question mark over whether demand for it would remain quite strong, even if the price did go up by 10% or so due to due to the imposition of a tariff. Um, so that would be the, 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 the main difference, I think, if the UK leaves without a deal at the end of the year. And it is quite difficult to predict in advance what the implications of that would be for the fisheries sector as a whole. Uh, and I think it's for that reason that a lot of the different groups that have tried to model the impacts of that have come out with different results. Um, so if you look at a study that was done by Wageningen University, which is a, a very well-known um, agricultural research institute in the Netherlands, uh, they suggested that uh, if the UK leaves without a deal, fisheries would gain about, uh, I think, £460 million uh, pounds and would lose about £500 million. So it's a net loss. Uh, if you look at the study that the New Economics Foundation did, they find a gain in profits of about 35-40% for UK fisheries uh, if it leaves without a deal. Um, and then, of course, as, as Barry was saying uh, earlier, uh, you've got a highly differentiated sector. You've got you've got many industries inside one industry. And so the implications for all of those would be quite different. Um, 
I, I don't know whether that answers the question. It, it, it almost says the question is rather difficult to answer. Yeah, that does. It does seem that way. But but thanks for trying to shed some light on it anyway, James. Um, I was just going to come to Deirdre, because um, I think you wanted to come in um, on the point around no agreement um, at the end of the year. Thank you. Um, thanks, Maddie. No, I was just really uh, quickly on uh, Norway being mentioned. As I understand it, there's only Norway negotiations only involve about six species of fish, fish and there are something like 75 species in UK waters. So that maybe makes it slightly less complex um, than the sorts of negotiations the UK would be happening would be having. Um, there was a report out very recently from the Strathclyde University, and it was around the environment and the importance of sustainability of fish stocks and so on. But it pointed out a high proportion of the apparent disparity between the total UK share of catches and the reliance of EU vessels on UK waters was down to really just four species. And I'd be interested to hear Barry's uh, point of view on that. Herring, mackerel, blue whiting, and sand eel. Um, so, you know, that, uh, yeah, I'd be very interested to hear Barry's um, point of view on that one because it's an interesting point to make. And I'd really like it. I hope we get a chance to talk about the sort of environmental impact of the CFP as well at some stage because I think that's a really important element that we mustn't, mustn't leave out of this discussion. I mean, on, on that Strathclyde study, uh, it focused uh, strangely uh, on the pelagics in, in the North Sea. Um, so it's it's one very uh, particular uh, part of the fishery. If you widen that out to the bigger picture, um, I, I mentioned Channel Cod nine percent share uh, previously. Uh, Celtic Sea Haddock, uh, our share is ten percent. Uh, French share is sixty six percent. Most of that haddock is caught in UK waters. Um, you certainly, uh, this varies by by species, uh, by stock. Uh, there are different percentage shares. Some of the UK shares aren't too bad, not not bad at all. Uh, on the others, there's a gross difference between uh, what we get under uh, relative stability, historic rights, and what we would expect uh, if, if the shares reflected the resources in our our, our waters. I just wanted to um, go back to the timing of the negotiation. So July looks like a, a goner. Uh, for a for a for a deal, uh, <clears throat> September October I think will be a, an, an important uh, turning point because at that stage we have to think about the negotiations for next year. Uh, setting quotas works on an annual cycle, uh, so we'll have the scientific advice very soon. Um, and then there's the question of you know we, whether there's a framework agreement uh, on fisheries or not. There's going to have to be an, an agreement for 2021, and in those those situations, the total allowable catches, access arrangements, quota shares, quota exchanges, all of the ingredients are are there, uh, but without a framework agreement, we we could, if necessary, do a framework agreement on fisheries further down the road. Uh, but the the need to set uh, quotas uh, and access arrangements uh, uh, for next year is going to happen anyway. So I think that's an important factor in the in, in the thinking about the timing. Yeah, definitely. And actually, Barry, while you're sort of uh, on the mic, as it were, there are a couple of questions that have come in um, from the Q&A that it would be interesting to get your thoughts on. So the, the first is um, from Emilio from Politico. Um, he sort of said, you, you mentioned that there might be stepping stages to having annual negotiations. And so he was just wondering um, whether you could expand a bit more on that and what a phased um, implementation of a new fishing arrangement would um, look like and how, how long would you be willing to wait sort of or how long should it be willing 
should it take place over. Um, and then another one um, from uh, Joe Barnes, who's a Brussels correspondent at The Express. I'm just interested, I think, on what numbers the UK fishing industry would actually be happy with in terms of quota shares. Um, so is there a sort of a, a landing zone, I guess, for you from that perspective, what, what your priorities in that space is? So he sort of said, given the channel would likely be split um, half down the middle, would 50-50 be the only acceptable position? Or is there a position where UK fishermen could accept a 30-70% split in favour of EU boats because it is still a much larger chunk for UK vessels because you sort of mentioned the EU share of Channel um, Cod being 91%. Well, first of all, clarification, I most definitely didn't say that there would be stepping stones to annual negotiations. Um, I, I think that national uh, uh, annual negotiations uh, are the norm between coastal states and that's what we have to move to immediately. Um, what, what I did indicate is that there could be stepping stones uh, to the revision of quota shares to move into the, the, the next question. Um, I, I could quite easily see uh, that a period of adjustment um, uh, takes place, stepping stones to uh, different shares. It's very difficult, in fact, impossible to, to, uh, to give it one figure uh, because, of, because of the reasons that were discussed earlier. Uh, some, of, some of our quota shares are okay, some of them uh, are very much not okay. Uh, and, and there are other factors as well. Um, because of the landings obligation, uh, some fisheries are in threat of choke uh, through, through lack of a particular species. So I would imagine that, uh, that we would want to give priority to, to, to those. So those are the, the kind of questions that would work into some kind of formula. But I think it's very important that the UK establishes right at the beginning that this is stepping stones to a, a final destination. And that final destination is where our quota shares reflect the resources are, that are in our waters, as Norway does, as Faroes does, as Iceland, Iceland etc, etc does. Thanks. Thanks for, for clarifying that. Um, I, I bring, I'll bring in a sort of a question that was sent in to us actually before the event, and it, it might go to some, your point, Deirdre, about discussing some of the environmental questions. Um, so Alistair Dillon sent in a question saying, you know, the public debate has largely focused on access to waters and stocks, but an important aspect of future cooperation will be the um, in-year and multi-annual fisheries management. Um, he, sort of, he said that ministers have acknowledged that positive changes made by the last reform of the common fisheries policy, um, which included greater multi-annual management and regionalised decision making. Um, so it has been a positive change. Um, basically, given, given the obligation under international law to cooperate on the management of shared stocks, what um, is your perspective, and I'll come to you first, Teresa, um, on uh, what sort of the key features of a future um, UK-EU fisheries management model should be to ensure the long-term sustainable um, shared fisheries and a sustainable shared marine environment? We've got manifesto commitments that uh, commit us to a plan to deliver maximum sustainable yields in in each stock. And uh, that's, I think, going to be a part of how we approach the environmental side of allocating and determining fish opportunities. Um, obviously, a huge problem is the science to determine what is maximum sustainable yield is, is by no means clear. And we do need to have a very strong focus on on, on that so that um, we can set ourselves realistic targets. But um, it is, I think, also to be crucial. Another theme that runs through government's thinking is 
approaching these management of fisheries using an ecosystems-based approach so to try to mitigate the impact on on the seabird on the commercial fish species um, and I think whilst I mean at the moment we have the expectation that leaving the CFP will immediately result in far greater opportunity for UK fishing committees and I, I haven't believed that it will, but obviously it won't take away those fundamental issues that we have to make sure that we don't overfish and that we are protecting the marine environment. And some of those questions are going to get sort of even tougher to resolve in the future. We've just had the uh, the new report about high protected marine areas, which talks about um, the possibility of quite significant restriction on fishing in certain limited areas. Um, so even outside of the fisheries policy, I hope a number of our ones will have gone because we are once again in control of our own fishing waters our 40 years. But a number of the very big issues and very big problems to resolve will still be with us, in particular reconciling the wish to to do support the economies of our coastal community, but at the same time make sure that we are protecting the marine environment and live up to the obligations we've set ourselves on leaving the environment in a better state for future generations who inherited it. Thanks. I'm wondering if I can turn to you now, Deirdre. Um, Obviously, there's sort of the question about how the UK and the EU might cooperate to manage the sort of stocks and sustainability in that area. There's also a big question about how the Scottish government, you know, alongside the Welsh and Northern Irish governments, will work with the UK government um, in sort of uh, managing sustainability of stock in the UK waters. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how that might be best managed um, and what your priorities would be in this area. I hope we'd have a very grown up uh, relationship about all of these things and, and cooperate. Um, properly on a, a very important issue. I mean, just reflecting on what Therese has just been saying, um, you know, no one would argue that the CFP has been an unqualified success. Um, we've had the Scottish Government calling the, the EU's most unpopular and discredited policy. But that said, it did reply, it did um, it did enable some sort of management of fish stocks to take place between the different uh, between the different countries within the EU. I'm still not clear from the UK government about monitoring and enforcement. And I know from reading recent transcripts of um, committees that uh, committee reports from um, the Lords, that that's something that they're particularly concerned about, um, just trying to ensure that proper management takes place um, within, uh, within our waters. I mean, I know that electronic monitoring is being called for. In fact, it seemed to be called for by pretty much every member of the um, committee that I was uh, reading the transcript from, um, of electronic monitoring to be installed on all UK boats and indeed for all, you know, it might be a conditional um, approach to any EU boats wanting to come into the water. But then, of course, it comes down to how do you monitor that? I've had people in the industry saying to me that, you know, they've got big concerns about exactly how that might be, be um, monitored. I mean... In regard to that, I mean, like I say, I would like to see more detail from the UK government. Um, certainly, I know it's a big um, it's a big focus for the Scottish government. Um, the sustainability of stock is 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 of, of great importance. It's that balancing act, isn't it, between 
you know, sufficient catch for the fishing industry to remain really viable and strong, but making sure that we don't, you know, as 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 being put in the past by some, you know, wholesale plunder of of, of stocks in our waters. That can't be. That can't continue because, I mean, look at what's happened in the North Atlantic and cod stocks off Newfoundland and so on. That should always act as a sort of really stark lesson to us all. If I could bring uh, Barry you in here, uh, what what are your thoughts on this question? Well, there's an absolute need uh, for us to fish sustainably, um, whether that's within the common fisheries policy or, or outside it. And I think both the EU and uh, the UK have both taken uh, pretty principled stances on 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 conservation. But um, you, you have to look at um, one of your um, one of the listeners uh, asked the question about multi-annual plans, but annual negotiations um, don't rule out multi-annual plans. We've had that before between EU and Norway, where you've had uh, five or six year uh, uh, multi-annual plans. They weren't called that, they were called long-term management plans or so, some other nomenclature. Uh, but but the, the point was the same, that you have, uh, you, you have a framework uh, and you have the scientific advice uh, and actually, if you look at the North Sea stocks, which are joint, have been jointly managed on an annual basis by the EU and the UK, uh, with the exception of, of North Sea cod, which uh, has got some particular environmental conditions associated with it, we've done very well. On the whole, since the year 2000, the stocks have been on an upward trajectory. Some of them are, are quite spectacular, like uh, North Sea place, which is at a, a, the biomass is at a historic high. Um, so I, I, I think that we've we've actually done quite well. Cod is a, a an outlier. Um, cod stocks, the scientists tell us, are moving northwards by about 12 kilometres a year. So there's a, there's there's a, a wider change going on there. That's the fundamental difficulty there. Uh, but 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 you know, absolutely, if we don't have sustainable uh, fishing, we don't have the stocks on which the economy is based on. Thanks for that. Um, before I come to you, Teresa, I just wanted to bring James in for a moment. Um, I was wondering, James, I mean, are there are there any sort of international agreements that will uh, impact on how the UK can manage um, its sort of fisheries after leaving the EU, sort of apart from the sort of EU-UK agreement that, that might be struck this year? The main one, Maddie, is the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which um, Baron and Deirdre have already mentioned. Um, that is, uh, it's a very large convention, it covers a number of issues other than fisheries. Uh, in its relation to fisheries, it places obligations on states that share stocks. So, uh, for instance, um, stocks of, of herring that are shared by, by the UK and its, its European neighbours um, to cooperate in the management of those stocks. Um, so, uh, there is uh, an obligation there to reach some form of cooperative arrangement for how to manage uh, those shared stocks. Uh, like many uh, UN agreements, the enforcement mechanism for that is not the strongest in the world, um, certainly nothing like the, the, the European courts. So um, I, I think what I would say there is that there are these obligations to cooperate on the management of shared stocks. There are the obligations to allow other states access to uh, access to parts of the stocks in your own waters, which your own fleet doesn't have the capacity to, to harvest. Um, so you've got, in a sense there, uh, that the, 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 the UNCLOS, insofar as it relates to the UK and the EU, is almost an agreement that they should have an agreement. 
Um, Barry is quite right that in the absence of an agreement, there will be no right for EU vessels to come and fish in UK waters. There is an obligation in international law for the two sides to talk to one another and come to an agreement. Um, but it's very that's a very difficult obligation to enforce. Um, and so I think, as Deirdre was saying earlier, that one of the real risks here is that you end up with a very fractious relationship between the UK and EU over fisheries that spends years going through various international courts and tribunals and possibly has some negative effects on conservation along the way. Great. Uh, Teresa, you wanted to come in, I think. Yes, yes. Um, sort of partly in response to Deirdre's sort of almost defence of the CFPD, not quite, but... Um, I mean, I, I would acknowledge that some of the action that has been taken by the European Union over food conservation has, has been reasonable. Um, but I believe that as an independent coastal state, we can do so much better because we can develop a regulatory system which is much more responsible and adaptable and fast, essentially. I mean, one of the I don't know, particularly when I was an MP, I experienced this, that the frustration of when something is going wrong with a, a regulatory approach, and it can take literally years to remedy that. So I see this one of the most important benefits of leaving the, both the EU, but particularly the CFP. So the science is telling us this year that stop not responding in the way that we expected or that the, the information on which we based our initial decisions was incorrect, then we should be able to have a system which reacts swiftly. And I also think that we need a system which is much more sort of focused on the impact of the boats in question. So it, it's clear that you know, we should have a sort of more risk-based sort of flexible approach when it comes to smaller boats, which we don't have the same kind of potential environmental impact as, as, as some of the sort of bigger, more industrial methods of fishing. And again, I think whilst obviously attempts are made to distinguish the, the different sort of size of vessels in the CFP, there is more that we can do to protect the environment rigorously and, and in fact much more effective than the CFP does, but to do it in a way which is, is less intrusive, disruptive for our fish fleets, particularly the, the smaller boats that make up such a significant portion of our fleet. Um, Deirdre, I don't know if you, you wanted to come back on that at all. I mean, I, I'd also add to that, that has been something that's been raised in the Q&A as well, saying that, and from Bart Brosius, that small fishing boats working near UK shores are 77% of the total fishing float, but have less than 4% of the quota. So how can a new fishing policy benefit the coastal communities and the small fishers? Um, and and that those that you know we've already discussed, but will also uh, possibly be hardest hit by lower access to EU markets. I don't know, Deirdre, if you have any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, just responding to um, Theresa's suggestion that I'm defending the CFP, I'm not sure what part of the EU's most unpopular and discredited policy lends itself to um, that particular point. But and just with regard to the smaller boats and um, what they're going to get out of this ultimately, I think, um, you know, what sort of redistribution of quota are we going to see? I mean, are we going to see, I mean, in, in recent years, I think the, the extra quota has been redistributed to smaller boats. Um, and is that going to continue? It is suggested in, in, in a number of environmental organisations that that's a more sustainable approach to fishing. Um, so we don't have any idea of what extra quota, depending on how much it is, how that is going to be distributed amongst the different elements of the industry. 
Um, but just, you know, if I can just go back to this whole um, period and, and, and it's what's important for the devolved governments in all of this, I mean, there's currently very little um, clarity for the devolved governments, let alone businesses, on um, how a number of important issues are going to operate at the end of that transition period. If I can pull it back to this, um, including, of course, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and I'd be interested to hear James' um, point of view on that in particular. Um, uh, there's already been a suggestion that businesses are unprepared. Where is the really um, detailed plans for business engagement, making sure that they are ready for um, a no deal, as, as we've been saying, it looks increasingly likely. And how do DEFRA ministers expect businesses that have only barely surviving the COVID crisis to deal with these added complications and burdens? And I think these are really important issues that we need to look at. Um, but uh, just getting back to the, 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 the um, I'm not sure whose name it is, let's have a look, uh, Bart's point about the, um, the, the small fishing boats. Yes, I think that does need to be looked at. I mean, obviously the, the larger fishing boats have an interest in increasing their shares, but we must be looking too at, at the sustainability of the industry. And I think um, the uh, rights of the smaller fishing boats need to be recognised in all of these discussions as well. Right, I think Bart, you wanted to come in on that and then we can we can return to the discussion of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It wouldn't be a Brexit event without discussing it, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, it comes back to this point about different industries. There are offshore fisheries fishing for the big pelagic stocks, mackerel, herring, blue whiting, uh, whose uh, tonnages are measured in, in, in hundreds of thousands of tonnes. We're talking about a massive industry. Then we're talking about um, small scale fishers um, many of which are fishing for non-quota species, crab, uh, lobster, scallop, bass are non-quota species. So uh, it, it upsets me because you get these distorted impressions on, uh, impressions on the basis of these, um, these wild statistics. Um, uh, certainly there's been redistribution uh, uh, of the species that actually matter to inshore fishermen in recent years, and I think that has helped a lot. Um, but I, I, uh, and also there's a big initiative about the future of inshore fisheries, a big conference last year uh, that uh, had a lot of inshore fishermen there. It's very interesting there. Uh, only 17% of the fishermen in that room said that uh, access to quota was their principal concern. Uh, overcrowding of the inshore grounds, loss of access to their traditional grounds, uh, markets, that's a much more important uh, issue than quotas. So it, it, it's not an unimportant issue, but it's not the only one. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. James, shall I come to you um, on Northern Ireland Protocol and what that might mean for UK fisheries? How, how does that interact with this? Yes, um, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol says some quite interesting things on Northern Irish fisheries. Um, the, as is well known, the basic structure of the Northern Ireland Protocol is that uh, Northern Ireland has to apply the full body of EU customs uh, legislation, including the EU's common external tariff, unless a good being moved from the UK into Northern Ireland, sorry, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, uh, is is not at risk of onward movement to the EU. And there's a, a slightly complex te technical definition of not at risk, uh, which has bits that still have to be worked out by the Joint Committee. Now, Northern Ireland is defined in the protocol as just the land territory of Northern Ireland. So it doesn't include that part of the UK's exclusive economic zone, which is projected from Northern Ireland. 
Uh, and so what the protocol does is it provides that the Joint Committee has to discuss the conditions on which catches of fish which are landed in Northern Ireland are to have tariff-free access to uh, EU markets. And there are some quite big questions still to be answered there around uh, what exactly, well, first of all, they, they need to agree on, on what, if any, tariffs are to be applicable. And secondly, they need to agree on what procedures will have to be fulfilled, because if you look at the protocol at the moment, one possible reading is that every fish landed in Northern Ireland immediately has to submit a customs declaration because it's entering uh, it's, it's, it's entering that part of the United Kingdom to which the protocol applies. Um, that would clearly be undesirable. And so that's definitely something that the Joint Committee needs to uh, needs to discuss and, and, and work out a practical solution for. I wonder, Barry, whether sort of in your capacity of representing fishes of, of Northern Ireland as well as Wales and England, whether this has been a sort of concern raised by members at all or how how, um, how the NFFO are sort of interacting with it? It's a concern because there are uh, a number of uncertainties uh, that are, are left hanging there, um, as, as James has alluded to. But the overall impression is that these are uh, things that can be managed, uh, that, that the, the, these are, uh, are things that uh, are, are not fundamental. And the fishermen of Northern Ireland um, are um, very much in line with the rest of the fishermen in the UK about the general objectives about leaving the common fisheries policy and the advantages that would follow from that. Okay, great. Um, I will bring in another question uh, from the Q&A. Um, I think, Teresa, I'm going to ask ask you this, if you're, if that's okay. Um, Simen uh, Svenheim, sorry, from the Norwegian Embassy, has asked, um, he sort of said, when the UK becomes an independent coastal state, it would not only have to negotiate with the EU, there are other important coastal state partners, Norway in the North Sea and several others in the coastal state negotiations on Pel Pelagics. I think I've pronounced that right, sorry if I haven't, um, for instance. Um, compared to how um, the EU has been doing these negotiations, is there anything that you think the UK should, uh, could do different when it comes to dealing with non-EU coastal states? Um, I, I think it will be very important for the UK to engage energetically with um, non-EU coastal states. Um, there, there are obviously quite intense negotiations in preparation for a a possible no-deal exit, which uh, resulted in, in various agreements. But um, I think I think in our, our discussions with you know, Norway, Iceland, the ferries, etc., we'll um, be sticking with the general principle that um, when it comes to shared stocks, that um, the UK fishing opportunities should reflect the resources in UK waters. Um, and uh, we'll certainly look to see if there are ways in which we can improve on the same discussions that the EU has had with its neighbours over the years. But at the heart of it, there is that principle that um, we should cooperate to manage shared stocks, but we should have a fair vision of the fishing resources, um, fishing opportunities that come with those shared stocks. And I think looking intensively together on the environmental and marine protection issues is also going to be very important in terms of our relationship with our neighbours. Deidre, I wonder if I can bring you in on, on this point and um, sort of what the Scot how the Scottish Government might want to be involved in that as well. Yeah, I mean the Scottish Government certainly want to be involved in any of those discussions. Um, it's uh, at times a little difficult for the Scottish Government to get involved. Um, in UK government trade negotiations, particularly, despite the fact we've been asking um, for that ability for some time. 
Um, but, you know, I would imagine, I mean, I, Scotland's relationship with the Scandinavian countries in particular in the areas in the sort of northern part of Scotland is, is always close and is developing further all the time. So uh, I would imagine we would be um, doing our very best to um, find a form of cooperation between all of the, the, the countries that have an interest in those areas, for sure. Barry, you wanted to come in. Yeah, um, my understanding is that um, draft agreements with uh, countries like Norway and, and Faroes are, are already well advanced um, and are you know, a lot easier to do than negotiations uh, with, with the EU because uh, we share um, many of the, the same principles of how coastal states um, operate. Um, I think in future, uh, so I, I think there's an expectation of continuity there. Um, I, you know, I think negotiations between coastal states are always tough, um, and I, I don't expect uh, anybody to uh, uh, to be a walkover. Uh, but I think that that will settle down into um, a, a pattern in which we have these annual negotiations, uh, and, and the really big issues about setting the the quotas at safe levels, um, access arrangements, uh, particularly uh, quota exchanges where uh, there's a mutual benefit. I think that will all be part of the, the picture in the future. But my understanding is that that is uh, uh, already well advanced. Well, I think sort of on, on that positive note, I think we might we might wrap it up there for the moment. Uh, thank you all of you for your very insightful uh, comments. It's been a really great discussion. I'm sorry that we couldn't get through all the questions on the chat. Um, because there were many of them um, and, and so thank you everyone for submitting your questions. Um, I'm sure this discussion about fish will continue for quite some time. Um, so thank you all of you. Uh, thanks for listening. If you do want to listen back to the conversation, the audio and video will be available shortly on our website uh, where more of these kinds of discussions are also available to download. Um, so thanks very much for tuning in. Thanks to our panelists and please do join us again um, for more IFG live discussions. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Mm -hmm.